I confess when I'm reading Exodus 5 multiple times this week, I'm, I'm getting all riled up. I'm listening to Pharaoh say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let your people go. And everything in me is thinking, oh, he's about to introduce himself. He's going to sit anywhere he wants. And he's going to stay as long as he wants. And he is going to let his own people go. I got this conversation going on the whole week long. <laughs> and then I stumble into uh, the words of Jesus. Who, as usual, never takes Pharaoh on. He just creates another way. It's another culture entirely. And he calls people who work for Pharaoh to come and rest. What a great, that a great story. Yeah, then I don't need to preach it. Man, that, oh my goodness. Tomorrow's Labor Day. Uh, and we've entered a time in the season of our country, I think, when we're sort of at a weird relationship with Labor, there's about 9 million people that are still unemployed. About 5.4% saw that just last night. But there's another 22 million uh, that are underemployed, which means that the job they're doing does not fit either their talent, their skill, or their experience, or they're working part-time, but they wish they could go full-time, or they're working full-time, but they're not making enough to make ends meet. About 80%, four out of five of the unemployed right now fit in that last category. They are full-time, but they can't make ends meet. It's a season when people um, are being paid by the government um, to supplement unemployment that's happened over the last 18, 24 months. And the argument now politically is whether we should cut this off. So if you listen to some channels, they, they will say, we're paying these people to work, and so no one's going to go to work until we turn off the supply. But if you change channels, what you'll hear is that the, I think 22 states that have turned off the supply still have not seen a major uptick in the number of people going back to work. So purely, if this were all about finances, then you'd think something like that would incentivize labor, but it hasn't done it. So about three, four months ago, Lori and I are driving through Arby's, where all Dutchmen eat, fine dining. <laughs> and uh, as we go through the window, uh, true to her custom, she thanks the girl at the window for working. And as we drive away, I say to her, why do you keep doing that? Uh, um, they're getting paid, you know. Uh, and she said, yes, but not much. And there are people getting paid who aren't working. So I think we ought to thank people who are working for working. It would seem like a nice moral lesson to add to the repertoire. And so I started to think of ways to do that. But that went into a conversation where we start, well, mostly I started pontificating 
about why this might be. We got into questions about are people actually making enough? And we were starting to wonder why is it that some people uh, with jobs in front of them are choosing not to go back to work while other people are, are continuing to work in jobs that are underpaying them. I'm thinking of teachers, policemen, firemen like this. They don't get paid enough compared to what they do, and yet they're still doing it. Why is it that some people are retiring early and they don't have enough money? They just want to be done. And then there's other people who won't retire. That's not a bad thing. Even though their 401ks are full, they have plenty to live on, but they still won't retire. Well, you can't talk about this for very long without bumping into the questions behind the ones you're asking. The real question isn't, why aren't more people working? The real question started to become, why is anybody working? I mean, it's not just what's happened to the workers. The question is, what has happened to the work? Have we reduced work from an act of worship to a series of repetitive, mechanized actions which cogs in the wheel do in order to satisfy some larger cause they've never heard? Has something happened to the labor, not just the laborers? It seems we've come out of this COVID thing, and it has begged questions that are fundamental about human work. And what we're finding is that we can barely articulate the questions anymore. We have so long coupled work with money. That's it. They're inseparable. That we cannot even think of work apart from money. There is always an economic answer to every work problem. So if you must have it, in economic terms, our vision of work is bankrupt. Well, this same time that we were uh, having this conversation, or I should say as I was having it in front of Lori, she hears all sermons first. And I was reading through the book of Exodus because I'm getting ready for the fall. Uh, and uh, I stumbled across, I'm in Exodus chapter 5 at this time, and I'm reading about this contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh. If, if this is new to you, if the book of Exodus is still kind of foreign, that's okay. Um, it tells the story of how God finds his people in captivity. They've been in slavery for 400 years, and they've been herded like cattle, into workloads, some cases making bricks for the Pharaoh. Now, there's actually early documents from Egyptian records 
that validate everything that is being said in Exodus chapter five. There are records that say the Pharaoh like marshaled all of these Jews into brickyards so they could build tombs for the dead or pyramids for their gods. And the people of God are crying out in misery. And one day God hears their voice. And when he hears their voice, he remembers the promise that he made to their forefathers. And he decides to act. He says he's going to find a servant. And he is going to use that servant to lead God's people out of Egypt. And once he leads them out, he will lead them to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Everything they've ever needed will be in the land where they're going. And God says, I will prove this because once I have led you out, you will worship me as a nation on Mount Horeb. And so God finds Moses and he commissions Moses to lead these people out of this bondage to Egypt. He tells Moses in chapter 4, verse 23, go and stand before Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, wait for it, Israel is my child. Israel's my son. Israel's my daughter. Now let Israel go so that they may worship me. Mm, man, that's a strong verse. Now, I'll tell you why. Because it's early in the book of Exodus and it establishes rather early that the point of the Exodus is not the liberation. The point of the Exodus is worship. The Exodus is not about freedom. It's about worship. It's about freedom on the way to worship. So it's not just about being over our addictions or over those relationships that are toxic. It's not about all those harsh conditions that we're trying to get out of. The Exodus is about liberating God's people so that they may find him again in the desert at a festival. And the word pictures are just getting larger as you read this. And so uh, Moses appears before Pharaoh. Pharaoh is busy counting his money and he's planning the next wonder of the ancient world. And Moses and Aaron pay him a visit. And they say, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. There it is again, isn't it? The purpose of the Exodus is not just getting out. It is the reunion of God with his people. It's God's people finding him again and reorienting all of their lives around his claim to their lives. That's the point of the Exodus. In, in, in fact, 
You read this in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is retelling the story. It's Deuteronomy 4, verse 34, where Moses tells the people of God that the reason for the exodus, wait for it, the language is beautiful. He says, there is a God who is calling one nation out of another nation. Oh, that's a strong image, isn't it? The goal of the exodus is for God to form a new nation that is borderless with people from every nation who have reunited with Yahweh and they have begun to reorient all of their lives around the claims of Yahweh. We were in Gettysburg, I said, about a month ago, and I could think of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers set forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, dedicated to the principle that all men are created equal. And then I read in Deuteronomy of the nation God was forming. Oh, and it was even bigger. And it would go something, maybe something like this, a lot longer than fourscore and seven years ago. Our Father set forth on every continent a new nation, conceived in worship and dedicated to the principle that all people belong to him. That's why they're equal and that's why they're free. That's a powerful image, isn't it? God is finding people in every continent, calling them to worship and he's making them one in Jesus Christ. So, as inspiring as that is, they appear before Pharaoh and they say to Pharaoh, uh, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may worship me in a festival in the desert. Pharaoh is unimpressed. He says he doesn't know Yahweh and he won't let the people go. And then he turns to Moses and he says, you're keeping these people from working. Now tell them to get back to work. You're stopping them from their labor. And there at the end of verse five, the lines are drawn. There are two powers vying for Israel's loyalty. One belongs to Pharaoh. Get these people back to work. And the other belongs to Yahweh. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. You see the contest? Do you see the contest? I wasn't sure. I'm having a ball right now, but I can't. Here's where it gets interesting. The same Hebrew root word, not the same word, but the root word, avad or aved or avodah, 
is used in multiple times in this chapter and in the previous three. It's used many times, but each time it's used, it's translated differently. And the way it's translated sometimes means the opposite. So, for instance, uh, it's translated in one place as work. Pharaoh said, make their work harder, but it's translated somewhere else as bondage. Chapter 6, I will release you from your bondage. Same word. In some places, it's translated as worship. Let my people go that they may worship me. And in other places, it's translated as servant or service. Don't be so hard on your servants. Same word. So the language in this chapter is moving all the time and you don't really know what one word means in the moment until you connect it to the context. And it turns out that something is either bondage or worship, depending on who it is for. If it's done for Pharaoh, then it's a form of harsh labor and bondage. Even if it pays the bills, even if you like your job, even if you're, hmm, how do we say it now, passionate about what you do, if you do it for Pharaoh, it's bondage. Because it isn't about the work, it's about the loyalty. It's about the reason. It's the way that your labor owns you and defines you and contains you. It's bondage. And work or service that is done for Yahweh is worship. It is freedom. It is creativity, movement, generosity. It is beautiful, even if you hate it, even if it doesn't pay the bills and it feels disconnected and you're not passionate about it. If it is done for Yahweh, it's a form of worship. It is divine. Some writer says, this is a great line. He goes, it might be divine drudgery, but it's divine. Because it's been infused with your loyalties. Because again, it isn't about the work. It's about the, it's about the purpose. It's the way he owns you. And the way he uses you and channels his grace and opportunity through you to the people around you. Are you still there? Now it's getting hot in here. So it becomes kind of clear at the end of chapter 5 that Pharaoh and Yahweh are not just two personalities. They are two systems, two economies. 
They're two loyalties, two centers to the same activity. Let my people go so that they can leave the brickyard and find me in a festival. The brickyard where so many of us work is a place of uh, self-invention, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. If you're working in a brickyard this morning, you still believe people basically get what they deserve. Mm. But if you're at the festival, my friends, you understand that people often get more than they deserve. That people don't just get what they worked for, they get what they haven't worked for, what was given to them. They stumble into success. If you're at the festival, You remember that if you're successful this morning, it is more because of things you can't explain than things you can. You can't even name them. And they are integral to your success. And so for want of that, you name the only things you can name and call that the reason for success. Baby, that ain't the festival. That's the brickyard. In the brickyard, there is disparity between people and the value of what people do. It's disconnected. It's frenetic. The laborer never sees the pyramids. He only sees the quota and the demand that is put upon him. And in the brickyard, it is a place of scarcity. The resources, the straw is taken away, but the demand never goes down. You get to the point where the work becomes endless. It becomes suffocating, undulating, relentless. Every achievement becomes a call to do even more. because you have to impress the Pharaoh. Oh, but if you're working in the festival, (laughs) our daily bread supplies all that we need. The work is connected. One sees the purpose for what they're doing. And there is no difference between the people ordering the work and the ones actually doing it. The power and the glory and the money doesn't all flow towards the few who are farthest removed from the labor. It is distributed in a way where every worker has enough 
It is an economy of manna. Not money. That cry was an amen. (laughs) Can you see how far the American economy has drifted from a festival? And it has become a brickyard. So Jesus... Here's the invitation. Rather than, rather than fight with Pharaoh and go at him like I wanted, Jesus creates another economy. And it begins with people finding rest in their labor. The call of Jesus is not the cessation of labor. Take my yoke upon you. (laughs) The call of Jesus is a yoke, my friends, not a lazy boy. It's a call to do something with our lives that has purpose and meaning, and it serves Yahweh instead of Pharaoh. Jesus says to people, come to me, all you who labor. That word means toil, hard, relentless, undulating, dehumanizing, frenetic work. Come to me, all of you who are trapped in work that is toil, Thorns and thistles, not the garden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am humble. I'm at the bottom, lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The problem isn't your work, it's your souls. It's the soul. That's why if you put any soul in the service of Pharaoh, it's toil. And if you can liberate that soul from Pharaoh and turn him toward Yahweh, then everything he or she does becomes a work of worship. Are you tracking? So it seems as if the call of God to us today is as fresh as it was in the day of Moses. God is calling people from every continent, trapped in labor that has torn them down and reduced them and separated them from any meaning or purpose in their life. 
And he has called them to be free in a new economy where things are never used up. They're always replenished by God every morning. That's what I came to tell you. If you find yourself doing work this morning that is heavy, relentless, tiresome, frustrating, can I tell you, please, your work belongs to Yahweh. If you're a follower of Christ, inside all the stuff that you have to do and you don't like to do, and by the way, every job in the room has that. I mean, so if you're still under the delusion, yeah, if I only had her job, you'd probably hate that too in a couple weeks when you ran into all the other stuff. If you're a follower of Jesus, Inside all the stuff is your calling in life. It's the stuff that you get to do because you are in service of Yahweh. And that calling in life is not simply to the work itself. It is to the people around you in that work. And that calling is not simply to have power, make decisions, and make a whole lot of profit. It is to use power and decisions and profit to elevate the lives of people around you. The purpose of your work is purpose. It is to help people rediscover their purpose in life. Because believe it or not, people actually have lives outside of work. And so it is to help people find that life and the meaning of that life so that they can thrive and flourish. And your work is a platform where you go every day and you get to do that. A few years ago, we talked about finding the work inside your job. Remember that? The job's all the other stuff, but the work inside your job is the stuff. So I started asking people in our congregation. I look back, I see Doug Porter back there. Doug's a math teacher, or he was. He's the tennis coach, too. And, and, and I said, what, what is the work inside your job? He said, my job is to lead the math department. You still lead the math department? Is to lead the math department at Marion High School. Watch this, because I looked this up. My work, he said, is to prepare kids for the next level of development. It's to incentivize them to go on for more education. That is a huge calling, much bigger than the times tables, which is where I got stuck. I taught Gary at the same time. Gary was running nursing homes, and I said, what is the work inside your job? Because uh, I think I knew his job. <laughs> Ryan knows it now. It's called firefighting. It's called problem solving. <laughs> he was dealing with lawyers and courts and all the time, and he said, that's my job. My work is to take care of your parents as if they were mine. 
Betsy Renderbarger was doing about 21 loads of laundry in one week. She told me this. Seven, eight trips a day in the van, pick up kids, drop them off. She said, the work inside my job is to teach my kids to love God and love others more than they love themselves. That is a huge calling. And do you realize the potential if she succeeds? You see this? It multiplies. That's how your work is different because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't seen that. You've been so preoccupied by the brickyard. Your work is different because the Holy Spirit is infusing you every day of your life. So every meeting you're in, every client you encounter, every frustration you have to deal with becomes a platform for spiritual formation. Now, the fact that I don't see that doesn't mean it isn't there. It just means I don't see it. And so part of what it is to work for Yahweh is to see the tremendous potential of this meeting and that encounter as an opportunity to shape somebody spiritually. And your work is valuable this morning because it's consistent with the work of God in forming the new creation. Your work is important this morning if you devote yourself to it as a lover of Yahweh because you're the down payment on something God is going to do in a big way at the end of time. You're the first installment.